I wanted to quickly take a moment to introduce, introduce Terrence Luker this morning. Uh, Terrence is a church planter and missionary and, and really just a pastor of people in Sesto Calende, Italy, which is a kind of a suburb, would you say, of Milan, kind of about 45 minutes of, uh, from Milan. They've been there for, in Italy for 15 years, 14 years, and in Sesto for eight years. Whew, man, testing myself. And uh, they, anyway, wonderful family that we partner with. They're, they are one of our international missions partnership, meaning that the tithe, the, the offering that you give, part of that, 30% of that gets set aside for missions, and some of that goes to the Lukers and uh, doing ministry in Sesto Calende. We're doing a trip there uh, in the spring of 2017. Details are forming. Monsa or Marisa is going. Um, call her Monsa. That's what she wants you to call her. If you want to know where that comes from, just when you write her name, combine the R and the I and take off the dot, and it's Monsa. So that's what she wants you to call her from now on. But she's going, and I'm going, and Karen's going, and Amber's going, and Terrence will be there, and uh, Nathan's going to go. He doesn't know that yet, but he's going to go. Um, but going to be a great trip. Great. He's going to talk to us kind of about the need in Italy, some in his sermon. But then today, after church, we're having a lunch over in the office uh, where, where you can come and hear more specifically about what life and gospel ministry and the gospel need is in northern Italy and really kind of Europe and beyond. So come join us for lunch. Terrence is going to share more specifically about ministry. He has a wonderful family, Hillary, um, and then Mary Joyce and Paul and Thomas are their kids. So, but thankful for him to come teach today. Uh, excited what he's going to teach. So uh, welcome Terrence, and he's going to teach us. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you, guys. It is a pleasure to be here. Uh, we consider you a strategic part of what we do. I'm so glad we sang the song Oceans this morning. It ties so well into what we're going to be studying, and it ties so well into how I feel. Because even just standing before you, for me, really is, feels like one of those oceans that God calls you to, that I feel completely inadequate and unworthy to stand before you or any group of people for that matter to, to speak for what God wants to say. But it's also a good place to be in because my prayer in that inadequacy is that I'm learning all the while to rest in God. God's been teaching me a lot about rest in the last several months, especially. Uh, around the 1st of April, I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning after a, a ski trip with uh, a lot of pressure, very, very uncomfortable pressure in my chest and chain, not chains, <laughs> maybe chains felt like, felt, I don't know where chains enter, but it rhymes with pain, which is what I was feeling that was going down my arm. So I woke up and I thought, what's, what's happening to me? Is it gas? <laughs> can, can ga okay, gas could be causing this part, but could it be causing this part? I don't know. So I get up and I find the blood pressure machine. And my, my wife, I'm sleeping in my daughter's bed because my daughter is sleeping in, in my bed with my wife because they both have a really severe case of strep throat. So I'm uh, taking my blood pressure. My he wife hears the beeps, and she's a little bit of a hypochondriac. So she wakes up and assumes I'm dying just be before she even talks to me to find out what the symptoms are. She assumes death is looming because I'm taking my blood pressure. So she's like, are you dying? Do you need to go to the hospital? And I said, well, I don't think I'm dying, but maybe I do need to go to the hospital. 
She said, well, who are you going to call? And I was like, nobody. I'm going to drive myself to the hospital, obviously. I'm having chest pains and, and, <laughs> and pain down my arm. It's the obvious conclusion. The logical thing to do is to drive yourself. So I drove myself to the hospital. And uh, it turned out I, w- I wasn't dying, but I did have something that needed to be treated. I had pericarditis and myocarditis. I never heard of either uh, before entering the hospital. And basically, it just meant... My, they, to, they kept telling me, your heart's good. And I was like, well, this is strange. You're saying that I'm in here for my heart, though. But it's the sac around your heart that's inflamed and the membrane that runs through your heart that was inflamed. And they said, the good news is you're not in critical condition, though we're going to put you in uh, intensive care. <laughs> and I'm like, I was trying to explain this to my wife on the phone. She wasn't buying it. I was like, it's not serious, but I'm in intensive care. Um, anyway... So I'm there. They say, you're not going to die, but uh, the road to recovery is a little bit long. So for five weeks, basically, I could do nothing. And the medicine that they had me on psychologically kept me from doing much, even working on the computer or getting caught up on administrative work. So during this time, I was very, very, very inactive, but I experienced very, very, very little rest. Because rest isn't about activity. The kind of rest that we are called to, the kind of rest that we need to be experiencing in our life has very little to do with how active or inactive we are. During this time, I experienced a lot of physical rest, a lot of physical inactivity, but I did not experience a lot of peace. Instead, I experienced a lot of frustration, a lot of anxiety. When can we rest? When can we rest? Rest for the child of God is not conditional upon environment. We can rest in any circumstance because we have all that we need to do all that God asks. We can rest as children of God. We can rest in any circumstance. Because we have all that we need to do all that God asks. We do not need to be controlled by anxiety and stress, even in the midst of real problems, even in the midst of a real issue. We do not need to be controlled by anxiety and stress if we are a child of God. How is this possible? How is this a possibility for us? How can this be a reality? Because we have been transformed. You guys have been studying over the last several weeks about the Sermon of the Mount and how it teaches us what Christ's followers are and what they look like. What do we look like? What do we look like? We look different because we are intrinsically different. Last week... You, you read about and studied about the two houses, one built on the sand, one built on the rock. Similar in appearance, but fundamentally different. The storm crum- comes, and what happens? One home crumbles, falls apart. The other home remains and is strong. Because we are in Christ, When storms come, we have the capacity to do what is uncommon. Be at peace. We can rest. 
in any circumstance because we have all that we need to do all that God asks. We're going to be studying Psalm chapter 3, Psalm 3, the first six verses. The first six verses. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David finds himself in this psalm in a very difficult circumstance. David wrote at least 37 of the first 41 Psalms under the same circumstance. He was fleeing from his son Absalom. His son Absalom wants the throne. And he wants his father dead. And he went through a long and and very um, calculated process of turning his father's people against him to the point that there were thousands of David's people who were wanting to see David dethroned and killed. This wasn't just someone on David's court who wanted to take over. This wasn't just um, a, a former friend. This was his son, his flesh and blood. So when we find David in this psalm, we find him with only a few faithful around him. He has escaped the capital to buy himself some time. David was a king. He was a warrior. Just how angry do you think he was? How how would you imagine he was seeking to inspire these faithful men to stay close to him? Let's look and see what his uh, reaction is. We find this in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse, uh, verse 30. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. So here we find David. He's escaped the capital city and he is devastated. He's got his faithful men around him and he cannot hide his devastation. He cannot hide how utterly overwhelmed he is about what is happening. And he weeps. And the men that are around him that love him and believe in him, they begin to weep. And they walk with him up the mount. And it was 
It was under these circumstances, these overwhelming circumstances, that David cries out to God and records uh, this psalm. Maybe not that day, maybe it was a different day, but it was under this time, at this time period, that he records these words. He is overwhelmed. We should be overwhelmed by life. I'm a planner. By nature, I'm a planner. When I was in junior high, I was such a dork. I still am a dork. I just try to hide it better. I tried to hide it then, too, because I had something that I never told anybody about. I had this journal that had, it wasn't a journal like of my thoughts. It was my 10-year plan for my life. I always had a 10-year plan for my life of what I was going to do when. I mean, it had everything in it, like when I was going to graduate from graduate school and how long it would take me to have enough money to allow myself to be married. It had everything in it. It was a 10-year plan. I've always had a 10-year plan my entire life. I am a planner. I like things I can control and doing things that make me feel competent. This is why I hate repelling. I don't want to, I don't like to repel. There's nothing about scaling down a mountain that makes me feel happy. (laughs) Nothing about it at all. I'm out of control. It's vulnerable. Um, And I told this to a friend, this I didn't plan on saying, so this sermon's probably going to get long, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, I I was asked to teach um, the, the Bible to some students on a wilderness trip in Canada. So my friend, one of my really good friends from seminary, um, called me to ask me to do this. He said, come, we're going to do this canoeing trip. He called it a canoeing trip. Now, I love, I love nature. I grew up uh, with, on a horse farm. I love, there's nothing about nature that I do not like. I love it. Um, but he did not prepare me for this trip in any way. I showed up with a suitcase. And because I was thinking we're going to have cabins and go canoeing across the lake and then come back and have Bible study or something. This was a wilderness trip. We were portaging. I don't know if you know what portaging is. I didn't know until then. We like canoed across lakes and then we had to pick up the canoes, put them on our backs and then hike for five miles until we got to the next lake. And then, and I'm like, I got this suit. I show up looking like a complete idiot, which is one of the things I don't like to do. Uh, And but the first day, the first day, he says, the first thing we're going to do is kind of a team building is we're going to go repelling. I was like, wait, I don't repel. I don't do it. And he said, yeah, yeah, you have to. Uh, you just have to. You're going to set an example for these kids. You're going to do it. I said, it will be a disaster. And he said, the only thing that could go wrong, and the only thing that could go wrong is if you don't start out with your legs far enough apart and you don't put, anyway. He told me some stuff. He said that the only real thing that could go wrong is if you, turned, if you ended up upside down in the harness. He said, then you could fall out and die or something. But, and I was like, okay, great. I said, okay. There were two boys there that I knew before this trip that I'd done another trip with, that I'd done some ski trips with in Oklahoma. Anyway, so they knew me, and they were accomplished climbers and repellers, so David picked them to hold the rope. And because they knew me and because I had a certain banter and sarcasm with them, they wanted to scare me a little bit. So I'm not in position yet. I'm just getting down the mountain, and they decide to just release. And I swing out from the mountain, 
hit my head so hard against the side of the mountain that it cracks the helmet that I've got on, and I end up upside down in the harness, and I'm just holding myself, and I'm cussing every cuss word I know in front of the kids that I'm about to teach the Bible to the whole rest of the week. And I told Wade it was all his fault. I did not even repent for any of it because I told him not to put me in that position. I like to be in control, so it makes no sense at all why I'm a missionary. No sense. I never had this on my 10-year plan to be a missionary. Not at all. I don't, I don't naturally like international people. I will just tell you. I, I never did. I love y'all. Y'all are my good friends here. <laughs> I brought the only internationals here, so in your face. Um, no, so, but... I just wasn't the one signing up to be friends of the new exchange students in seminary. I would do it, and it would go bad. And so when God started calling me, started opening my heart up a little bit to what his heart was, I was like, okay, but I was kind of like with my friend Wade, but it's your fault if it goes bad, if, if, we, if I do this. And I know you're thinking, well, you're, you're not really a missionary. You're in Italy. Uh, you get to eat gelato and pasta and uh, whatever. Uh, but Italy is a tough place spiritually. Like, there's a lot of great things about living in Italy. I'll tell you, I, I love a lot of things about uh, the lifestyle, about uh, where I live and what I get to do because I live there. I'm not going to pretend that there aren't uh, some definite benefits. But Italy was never really deeply affected by the Reformation. So it's never really experienced a penetrating revival uh, in, its, in its history since biblical times, really. Um, it takes on average 20 years to plant a church in Italy. Um, we did uh, student ministry in Milan, and in three years of student ministry, we had one student convert, and it was at the very end. It was like the very last thing I did in Italy. He came up to me and he's, he came to a service and he said, I accepted Christ. I was like, man, anyway, it was amazing. But I was like, really? <laughs> really? I mean, we're leaving tomorrow. And, and it happens now. I mean, I was glad. I was really glad. And, and, and I, I'm probably not a great missionary, but the, those results weren't due to the fact that I'm not a great missionary. No other organization was having success reaching students in Milan either. The fact that we had one who, and he is still really firmly walking with Christ to this day, is a, is a wonderful thing. So for someone who enjoys controlling things and feeling competent, I am in the wrong place. My first winter in Sesto Calende, so we were in Milan for a little while, and then we moved to the town we're at now. My first winter... We have our first kind of evangelistic event. We invite families over for Thanksgiving, and we cook them a Thanksgiving meal. The, this is late November. So the day after, um, my car stops working, and it's a pretty new car. It stops working, but it starts snowing a lot, and it keeps snowing. And then the next Sunday, my, our hot water heater stopped working. So we didn't have any hot water, and the water was so cold that if you put liquid soap underneath it, it turned hard. It was super cold. And there was this crazy snowstorm happening. And that 
Oh, I forgot to tell you, the week before the evangelistic event, my wife was pregnant with our third son, third child. Our oldest is a girl. Um, I told a group one time I had four kids, but I don't. I have three. <laughs> Anyways, so it's not beyond me to get confused. Um, I have three. She was pregnant with a third. And she was put on bed rest. And this is the week before we're having our first event. So she's put on bed rest. And I'm like, that's okay. We can handle this. We've got a three-year-old, one-year-old. It'll be fine. <laughs> this is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rest in God on this one. But then the car breaks down. Then the hot water heater breaks. They send a technician. He can't fix it. So we have, because our hot water is out, we have no heat in the house either. Because all the heat is through the hot water system. We were without heat for 27 days or hot water with two small children. And the only heat was this little furnace thing. We had an intern living with us as well. That was a joy. And it was, it was, this was amazing for 27 days. And all we were doing and all we did that first year in Milan was survive. Because the people that we went to work with, um, they're... Um, their father was, their mother died right after we moved there. And so then they were helping take care of their father, and he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And she was pregnant with a, a pregnancy as well that was her, she had miscarried several times, so it was kind of delicate there at the end. So I get there, and all these things are happening, and I'm like, God, why did you put me here? I'm just surviving. I'm not doing anything. I, it, it felt so crummy. And felt so, I felt so overwhelmed and guilty because I was like, people are sending us this money and we're really, we're just living because it's all we can do. Because I'm just taking care of the basic necessities from day to day. How much of your time do you spend trying to stay safe and trying to stay in a place that you can control? Yet we know we live in a world where if we are following God, we are going to have to go against the flow of what appears easy. We're going to have to go out into that ocean. Why can we do it? We can do it because we're different. We don't need to be afraid of what seems like an ocean or a desert or a war that is beyond us. I'm convinced of very little outside of Christ, but I am convinced that God is calling you to do something you are uncomfortable with. If you spend your life doing only those things you can control and are comfortable with, then you will be able to take credit for anything good that results. God is calling you to do something different. Maybe it's a task you're incapable of, Maybe it's a pain you're not prepared to face. Maybe it's simply giving instead of receiving. Maybe it's opening yourself up to ridicule to share the ridiculous, the absolute ridiculous faith that we have in our amazing Christ. David is overwhelmed, and he has reason to be. His son wants him dead and wants his power. 
the battle he's facing is real. It's not imaginary. It's not just psychological. It's not just some feeling of inadequacy that's running through his head. It is a real problem, a real stress. And if we follow God, we're going to find ourselves in a real problem, in a, in a real overwhelming circumstance. David's overwhelmed. And if that wasn't enough, he hears the voices of those against him. Verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David's enemies are taunting him. They're saying, David, you think you're God's anointed? Well, who's protecting you now? Who's on your side now? It's obvious God has abandoned you. He is not by your side any longer. He may have put you on the throne, but now he's taking you off and he's going to use us to do it. You have been abandoned and rightfully so. These voices are strong. Most of the voices that tell me I do not measure up and that God is not on my side are not the voices of other people, but they're my own voice. And the truth is, I don't measure up. Who am I? I'm a short guy born in Hope, Arkansas, in southwest Arkansas. My, I, was, I was a good student. And every subject except for French, foreign language. I hated language, and I hated grammar. And I saw my French teacher. She's the only teacher I didn't like in high school. Um, and I saw her for the first time since high school just this last week. And um, she still really doesn't like me. I could tell. <laughs> I have the gift of discernment. Uh, she said, yes, I heard you were a missionary. And I thought, God usually does call the mean ones. <laughs> That's what she said. She's not a very... Okay, y'all have to edit this out. I won't, we, won't, we won't put her on the mailing list to hear that. She's a great lady. She had reason to not like me at, at one point. I'll say that. She had reason to not like me. But I hated her class because I hated French. There was nothing that made me feel good about speaking French. I knew it didn't come out of my mouth the right way. It made me uncomfortable. And I studied languages in, in seminary. I mean, there were dead languages, but I still, I just, grammar, it's like, my goodness, I've got to, I needed to study English better before I could understand something else. So when, when God put me in Italy, Language was a significant issue for me because, I mean, you, you have to talk. <laughs> and uh, I like being in control, so I was out of control of my capacity to understand the language. And I like to look competent, and there was nothing about me that looked competent when I was trying to speak Italian in the first years especially. So go figure the spiritual warfare I'm already feeling like I'm incapable completely and utterly just because of the language. So throw in there the, the task at hand that uh, is a difficult one. 
and I'm flooded with the reality, not just the thought, the reality that I do not measure up. The voices are right. I, I can't do this. And I'm thankful for that. Because it's those voices that drive me to dependence upon God. Is God calling you to do something you're uncomfortable with? I already told you he is. So that's great. It's best if it scares you a little bit. That's a good thing. Because I, I feel people with no fear that feel completely adequate to the task are really, really the most dangerous to the kingdom. And the most dangerous to what God wants to do with them. Why? Because we on our own do not measure up. We cannot trust ourselves. What makes us suited for the task we are called to has nothing to do with us. Let's move on to verse 3 to see what makes us suited to face these storms. Verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. David remembers whose side he is on, who he is fighting for, and who is fighting for him. The Lord is his shield. The Lord is his glory. What makes us magnificent has nothing to do with us. Y'all know the great theological word imputation? This is this word that describes God doing something to someone else or something else. And that object that is receiving the action is completely passive in the process. And this is an amazing thing for us. Because the first form of grand form of imputation that we see is when Christ in complete purity and complete innocence is given our sin. God dresses him in our filthiness. He has no guilt. He deserves not to be dressed in what we have done and in what we are. He is guiltless. So through no fault of his own, God puts on him our sin so that he could end its reign, so that he could end its power. So he takes us, as we look at what Christ did on the cross in taking on our sins and ending its power, and as we look to that with faith as the answer to life and as the key to knowing God, God does something incredibly miraculous to make us magnificent. He takes us, even though we are unworthy, with no merit, we are completely passive in the process. He puts on us the righteousness of his son. We do not deserve it. He puts it on us. We're incapable of helping him put it on us. We are magnificent, but it has nothing to do with us. David says, the Lord is the lifter of his head. In, in the Lord, he finds restoration to dignity. And it is only in the Lord that we should find our identity. When I arrived to Italy, I had no idea how many things I clung to desperately 
for my identity. The first year that I was there, 2002, 2003, the U.S. was entering Iraq, and it was a hugely unpopular move. And there were protests everywhere in Italy every day for the entire year. There were protests and signs that people would have hanging out their window. And we were working with college students who were more than happy to inform us about how wrong um, these moves were by our government. But some of this stuff, it didn't really surprise me that much, except for this. It struck me so deep within with a sense of vulnerability. I had no idea. I'm a, I'm a patriot, but I didn't consider myself... Uh, I don't know. It didn't, I didn't get greatly offended if I heard somebody saying something negative about the United States. It didn't lead, didn't make me ready to fight. <laughs> but with this situation, I started thinking, oh my goodness, the, the power that the U.S. has in the world it is going to probably end one day. And so that my identity as an American, which does provide you with a sense of security when you're out in the world, because you think, well, if something happens, I can get back to the U.S. If something happens, I can make it to uh, our consulate. I can, I can get some protection. You know, if something happens bad to an American overseas, you hear about it. When something bad happens to a poor immigrant, you don't. So there is a sense of, and that's a, that's a reality that I dislike, but I also benefit from and provides me with a sense of security that I wasn't completely aware of how much security I found in that identity of being an American. Going back to my uh, problems with the language, I'm not typically a prideful person. I have two master's degrees from Dallas Theological Seminary, but I know how poor of a student I was. And so I'm not even that proud of those degrees because I felt like in the end they just gave them to me so that I would leave because <laughs> it, I'm not, anyway, I don't have them hung on my wall. I gave them to my parents because they were paying for it. I wanted them to be proud, but I was kind of ashamed. I was like, they, sh I sh they shouldn't have given me those documents. So I... I, I it's never been somebody that boasted in, and I certainly wouldn't boast about it in front of you guys. Um, but I was standing in line at the supermarket, and I come from a family of farmers. We had, we had chicken houses. We had three chicken houses. My mom ended up working in a bank, but before that, she was a cashier in grocery stores. They were, I mean, were uh, simple people. They've been successful, but... Uh, by getting dirty. So I'm in line at the supermarket and I'm not understanding what the cashier is trying to say to me and she starts treating me like I'm stupid even though I couldn't understand the words I could understand the sentiment. Never in my life had I wanted to put somebody in their place and let her know listen, I'm an American with two master's degrees. I am not dumb and you're a cashier at this little grocery store. That's what I wanted to say so bad, but luckily I didn't know the language well enough yet to say that. But I had no idea. Waiting in line with immigrants. We were, I'm, I'm in Italy to be a missionary. I, I'm supposed to be there because my heart is like God's heart. And we're in line at getting government documents. And you have immigrants there who come from 
very hostile places and places that you have to be aggressive to get what you want. Plus, they're an immigrant in Italy where they have to be even more aggressive to be able to get what they want. And so we're in line with them, and they're being aggressive, and, and they're there losing work because they're there. So that creates even more aggression and more anxiety on their part. And, and they don't get the benefit of doing a full year of language school like I got to do, where I can understand the policeman when he's talking to me and, and what have you. So they're there with a whole set of anxiety that I can't really know. But at the end of the day, I got there at 5 o'clock in the morning like they did just to be in line for when the doors open at 8. And I'm with my wife that at times in waiting in those lines was pregnant or we were with a small child. And they're pushing and they're being rude. They're trying to get in front of us. And I can't even tell you because of how much shame I have of the things that went through my mind in those moments. Thoughts of superiority. Thoughts of thoughts that I shouldn't think about anyone. I am saddened by how much I cling to these things to form my identity. When we live like this, we're living on shaky ground. And when someone messes with any of it, we get really defensive because we understand deep down how shaky it is. Remembering my identity in Christ, however, will allow me the strength to stand and will inform me as to what worth those around me have as well. The Lord is what makes me special, and I cannot take credit for it. For David, he remembers that the war he is fighting is ultimately God's war. God put him where he is. God has chosen to use him the way he's chosen to use him up to that point. The life I now live is his. He will sustain me. He will provide. Do not fear those that can simply take your life. Live for him who gave you life. Facing the storm, David remembers who he is, but his circumstances has not changed. He cries out to God, and his perspective changes. And this is what he does in verse 5. This is what he does in verse 5. I laid down and slept. David chooses vulnerability. Real quickly, think back about David and his situation with King Saul. David was a young warrior. He had had a lot of success in leading Israel to battle and winning. And he was becoming more and more popular. And this was making King Saul feel vulnerable. And he started to question David's motives. And he started to think, David's after my throne. He wants to become the king. The, the people are about to even probably demand for him to take my place. So Saul becomes um, bent on seeking David's life. But David is running, and David has no intention of laying his hands on Saul. Look at First um, Samuel, First Samuel chapter twenty-six. First Samuel chapter twenty-six, verses seven through twelve. 
27. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So David here, when his son is out to get him, and the thousands are against him, chooses to lay down and sleep knowing full well that he was putting himself in the vulnerable position that he may not wake up, that his enemy could come in and take his life. David chooses vulnerability. He can do this because he is assured of who he is in God. And he is willing to rest in that sovereignty and possibly even accept the fact that if God really is choosing to move on from him, that, that so be it. He is putting himself in God's hand to do with the matter as he sees fit, sleeping through the night. When we had our second child, we were really, we were really, we covered, we did a schedule with Mary Joyce for sleeping, what have you. And uh, we were protecting that. And we were still kind of trying to protect that a little bit when our second child arrived. And we were so afraid that him waking up in the night screaming and yelling was going to wake her up. We didn't want that to be disturbed. What we found was she, he could be screaming bloody murder and it didn't disturb her one bit. And I thought, how does she not wake up? She's not waking up because she's not feeling the responsibility. She doesn't have the weight of, an, of a parent or an adult that that child's scream needs to be addressed or ignored maybe, but that's later. In the beginning, you have to, <laughs> have to tend to it. But um, anyway, she's at sleep because she doesn't have any responsibility. Her, she's comfortable with us handling her life and the details of her life. Sounds did not alarm her in that way. She felt no responsibility in the situation. Somewhat, that's what it's like for us to rest in God. We're able to rest and be free of anxiety when we've relinquished control of a situation. It's not necessarily about becoming inactive and laying down and stopping to participate in what God is doing. It's participating with God, but allowing Him to have control of the process. When we've got anxiety and stress over the things that we're doing and the things that we're involved in and the, and the details of our life, it's because we're trying to hold things together and in those moments, we're not trusting God to do so. We can lie down and rest when we are assured someone else has everything under control. If, 
If you are not experiencing rest in God, it is because you are not trusting God and ready to accept whatever it is he has for you. David sleeps, then he wakes up to renewed confidence. Let's look at uh, the end of verse 5 and then in verse 6. It says, I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. That's logical, right? I mean, he slept, so he should just all of a sudden not be afraid of a thousand people. That makes a lot of sense. Um, A good night's sleep can make you ready for anything. God calls us to scary places. But when we follow him, he provides us with what we need to keep going. There have been a few moments in my life, maybe more than a few, but a few very memorable moments where God helped me see that the life that I am called to isn't mine to control, and the doors that he opens, he will open, and I don't need to have anxiety about the things that I can't control. One of those moments was the first time I went to Italy, I went under a student visa. I had to go to Houston. I had to come to Houston from Arkansas like four or five times. It was traumatic, stressful. You couldn't get answers. Anyway, it was, it was good preparation for living in Italy, but the second time around, when I was playing with my wife, because I started out single, I was playing with my wife. Before I went in, I was like, we're just going to give this to God. And we weren't being just cliche about that. Where I was like, let's pray. And I was like, God, you know we need this to go to Italy. If you don't provide it, then we're going to stay here. We will do, we will go through the door you open." But it's your responsibility, God, to get us this visa. I am not going to worry about it. I'm not going to be in stress over it. I'm not going to, be, I'm not going to take on anxiety because I have no control. Me being anxious is not going to make the Italian government give it to me faster or give it to me at all. So we went in, and it was beautiful because I was like, I don't care what you say. <laughs> and I, I didn't do that, but in my heart I was doing that. Um, so I gave him, the lady asked like, looked up and asked us like two questions, kept going, and we had our visa in five days. And the last time, just for a student visa, it was just crazy thing. And it's so stupid, it's just a document. And, and somebody can explain away the circumstances of us getting the document that fast and what have you, all they want. And maybe there were human reasons behind it, I don't know. But all I know is... God helped me walk in that with confidence. And that is a little silly thing, uh, along with some other things involving having the right resources at the right time, where I know God is in it. I'm scared out of my mind most of the time, but I know God is in it. So if God is in it, and if it's what he's calling me to, and that discomfort makes me be all the more dependent upon him, then, then so be it. He's going to provide. So he sleeps. We're finishing now. What will keep us from entering that rest and walking in confidence? Let's look just real quickly at Hebrews 3. Oh my gosh, I'm going way over. I'm sorry. Y'all won't have to see me for another two years, so you'll forget by the next time I come. Okay. Blame Heath. He insisted. (laughs) Sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. This is why people don't ask missionaries to speak because they really don't stop talking. Um, 
Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, chapter, I'm sorry, I'm reading chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 3 from verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. For your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Look at verse 12 closely. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. An unbelieving heart is the only thing that keeps you from resting under the sovereign control of God. It's the only thing that's keeping you from living the extraordinary life that God wants you to have out in the deserts and on the oceans and in the middle of a battle that is beyond you. Abandon your striving. Our faith is an active faith. It bears fruit in our life. It makes us different. It affects the choices we make. However, our activity must be born out of our faith and awareness of who we are in Christ. It must be powered by the Holy Spirit. Just like David remembered that the Lord was his shield and his glory. It should be remarkably different, however, than what we see happening in world religions where the faithful are striving to earn or secure salvation and spiritual reward. What can we earn from a God who has already given us everything? God has dressed us in the righteousness of his son. He has made us white as snow and written upon us perfect. What more do we have to prove? We cannot add anything to perfect. This doesn't mean that we sit down and become inactive, but it does mean that when we are active, we are doing it because of who we are in him with the awareness that we that what we do is not an effort to become more accepted. When we are striving to achieve more and working to live out our faith fueled by our own power, the result is anxiety, the result is burnout, the result is fatigue. You can rest in him because in him, not in you, in him you have all that you need to do all that he asks. Your life is his, the battle is his. Take a deep breath, rest in him. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your power. Thank you that you choose to use us, though we are unworthy, but you declare us worthy through the blood of your son. Help us to rest all the more in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.